had this like visual image that I was sitting in an armchair and this 18 year old girl who had been me was sitting there too. And we could talk and I could tell her, I'm so sorry. I love you and I love who you are. And these are not you, it's not you who did this. It was this whole cult that did this to you. You are on another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. I'm your host, Andrew Gold, and today it's Jennifer Cunha who is on the show to talk about her bizarre and difficult upbringing in the Institute in Basic Life Principles, an extreme Christian fundamentalist set of beliefs, a cult that took hold on society when the Duggars, a family known for TLC's 19 Kids and Counting, made it quite popular. There has been a big documentary series called Shiny Happy People about this cult. It's a really, really bizarre one with bizarre, strange rules and modesty and bizarre things they have to do and parents chaperoning kids to dates and all sorts of odd and horrible, horrible things. It's linked to last week's episode with Kendra Bryan, uh, where we talked about To Train Up a Child, that um, quite gruesome and horrible book that was written for ways of sort of torturously uh, bringing up children. Uh, Jennifer's a fantastic speaker. Do go follow her on Instagram on Parrot Kindergarten. She has taught her parrot thing, bird thing, to read. her cock- Well, she taught her cockatoo to read, uh, and it's really fascinating. So she's got all sorts of weird and strange things. That's on TikTok as well. Go follow her there. And lots of big episodes coming up, as I say. I've just got a guest booker on the show um, as part of the as part of the podcast. I, I mean, and things are going to be a little bit different. We're going to shake things up a little bit in the next uh, few months. That's going to help me big time. But now you're on the edge of the Institute in Basic Life Principles. Horrible cult with Jennifer Cunha. I've got Jennifer Cunha on today. We're talking about the IBLP, I think. Is that right? I always think I get the initials wrong of everything. It is IBLP, isn't it? IBLP, Institute in Basic Life Principles. That's what it is. Jennifer, tell me a little bit about it. What is it? Um, well, on the surface, it looks really sweet and kind of, you know, perfect American family sort of stuff. Generally, fairly conservative Christian families with lots of kids who are well-behaved in theory and wives who adore their husbands and husbands who, you know, like support and are head of household for the family. But beneath all of this really is a lot of darkness. Um, There's a lot of abuse and control and fear um, and pain. And so, so the organization itself, you know, was a homeschool organization for families. They also have a basic seminar that was attended by millions of people in the world that encouraged, you know, really these biblical roles for families that really, when they played out, were extremely toxic and extremely um, harmful to pretty much everybody involved, but especially to women, especially to children. And you grew up, I believe, was it from the age of 12, I think, in this kind of cult? At what point did you realize that it might be uh, a little bit different or a little bit harmful? Yeah, my parents went to the basic seminar when I was 12. And then we got more involved, I think, when I was 14, 15. Um, and then I went to the cult centers when I was um, 16, I think 15 or 16, 16, um, until 18. So um, when I grew up, it was normal garden variety Christian, um, conservative Christian. We went to a Baptist church, but even, you know, that general Christianity has a narrative that can be pretty harmful, I think, to to people. Um, as a child, before we got into the cult, you know, we were taught about Satan and demons. So that was a bit of my childhood. It was like these fears of, you know, demons and Satan, and it, it, it interfered with my ability to sleep in some senses. But, you know, generally it was like going to church and having community and, and things like that. When we joined the cult, it definitely got darker. Um, and um, I was 12 years old when my parents went to the basic seminar. I remember I was um, outside and gardening. We just moved into this house and I had decided I wanted to garden. So they would come home every single night from this basic seminar and tell us about the things that they had learned. And I was basically in the garden and they were like <laughs> coming and telling me that 
they had heard about courtship and this idea that, you know, you can't date anymore. It's going to be your family goes on dates with you and um, you're always chaperoned. And I was like, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? And so it definitely um, was a different, you know, version. And that was the beginning of getting into IBLP. Um, but of course, it got darker after that. Did you go on dates then as a young teenager with your parents chaperoning you? Oh, no. Um, it was like, first of all, my family, you know, we weren't going to be able to have romantic relationships until we were 16, which is fine. It's normal, probably. But by the time I was 16, I was involved. My family, um, when I was, I think, 14 or 15, we joined IBLP's um, homeschool program, the Advanced Training Institute. So the Advanced Training Institute um, was like the super ultra Christians. <laughs> and I guess some of the motivations my family had getting into Advanced Training Institute, um, you know, as I said, my family was very Christian. I was raised um, mostly on classical music. Um, we didn't listen to rock music, even though we weren't an IBLP, we didn't listen to rock music that much. Um, when I was eight, my dad decided he liked oldies again. So we listened to oldies for a couple of years. Um, and then, you know, and then that went away too. But, um, my family, you know, they were, they were Christian, but they had some dynamics that were really hard. Um, and so my, my, my mom like thought that my dad had started cheating on her and you know my dad was frequently upset with everybody and so these dynamics really made for kind of like a difficult childhood experience but my mom I think saw these families in IBLP and ATI and she thought maybe that can save us right and um and so that really was a lot of the I think impetus to getting involved was just trying to trying to save the family um yeah wow and that puts a lot of pressure on a young girl at that time and did you have siblings i have three younger brothers and um, my younger brothers um yeah were also getting involved with um idlp ati as the so we got involved and then we ended up by the time it was like dating age we were so deep into it that really was more like courtship some had arranged marriages um, so, so I didn't end up dating that much be at all um, until I was actually 22 um, because, yeah, because, you know, there was, you, you were allowed to date, but then if you were going to be romantically involved, it was going to be really the person that you would marry. And so, so I, my first date, I was 22 years old. Wow. And did you marry that person? I did. Yeah. And then it turned out pretty rough. Um, oh. I went from a, a like really hard situation in the past and the cult made it worse to you know you're used to unhealthy harmful dynamics and then i got into an abusive relationship and it happens time and time again doesn't it if you grow up in those kinds of patterns it's so hard to get out of them so your your mom wanted to save the family and it it feels like your your dad something to do with the music i know that um they, they banned like drumming that's not allowed is it um and and some weird things like that yeah. what was that about i guess like there are some racist underpinnings in i think in general christianity but also in iblp and stuff like drums were um from africa and they were satanic and they were used to call up demons um they also felt i mean some of the things that it was told, which, you know, now you're like, oh my gosh, how could anybody say these kinds of horrible things? But, you know, like black people, they said, were descended from Ham, who was like rejected by his father, or Ishmael, who was rejected by Abraham, which is horrific. These are horrific narratives for anyone to even assert or claim or think. But you have these kind of like dynamic, um, conversations that can be influential especially to young children that are part of christianity and iblp um so drums are a part of that like drum beat that is from africa things that are associated with africa are demonic there's a lot of demonology in africa so there is this kind of like hard anti-stance against other right and um 
you know, and, and it's wrong. It's horrible and it's wrong. How much as a, as a child did you buy into that? Not just obviously that, that sort of racist element or whatever, but just all of it, the whole shebang, the whole demons and things you said you had. I mean, did you, you had bad dreams and did you really believe in a lot of... And, and also tell me, sorry, I'm asking like four different questions at once, but did you also... <laughs> what, 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 sorry, what is the, uh, the mythology behind, behind it? Um, when you say the mythology behind it, do you mean around the music or the like the spiritual beliefs that there is? Some- I suppose the whole spiritual beliefs um, of the IBLP. Okay, so this is why IBLP for so long has been not considered a cult because it has so many mainstream Protestant followers. Right? It's not. It's not a specific church. It is not like the church of blah 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 that has, you know, skewed or fringe fundamentalist whatever. It is. It's Presbyterian and Baptist and Methodist. And there are a variety of Protestants, Mennonites, um, a variety of Protestants who join this, you know, kind of like organization to, you know, to bring goodness to their families and to be like, you know, kind of the elite Christians that have more of God's blessings. So, so in a sense, the like, the, the way that I think it fronted for so long as, a normal program that supported families and brought goodness is because so many Christians across the spectrum of Protestant beliefs subscribed. But there were some things that maybe um, were specific in scriptural interpretation to IBLP that, um, you know, that aligned generally with all of these different belief systems that generally had very different opinions about stuff. But but some of them, you know, are had, had, the husband is the head of the household to a large extent, the woman is very submissive, right? And of course, this is so much more removed from the regular Christians where like maybe both work or there's a little bit maybe more equality. Like there's so much less equality between men and women in IBLP that if a woman is abused, she's supposed to go to, you know, her husband and make an appeal or, you know, like, go to the elders of the church who will tell him to behave or or whatever and and not really even they were afraid of counselors right they didn't want you to go to secular counselors or other counselors who weren't in the organization because those counselors might encourage you to leave but by extension there was so much abuse there was a lot of like control and verbal abuse emotional abuse of women in some cases extreme physical abuse of women i didn't know until i was adult that some of my friends their father had a gun at the dinner table on a regular basis. And he taught Sunday school to my parents. So yeah, like you have these normal kind of, to me, I, I do think that submission is a toxic mentality. And I know it's prevalent in Christianity, but it goes to even more extreme that women can't, you know, women can't really get out. If you leave, you're sinning. If you remarry, you're sinning. If you, you know, you have to go through these channels. The channels are also designed to keep women in that place and keep women abused. So, so there's there's that. That's one like of the theological beliefs that's very harmful. By another one um, is that I think they said like children who are if you if you believe your husband's sexually abusing children, they didn't even recommend the husband leaving. They still said like go to the elders of the church and tell them and they'll put him back in his place. There was nowhere, if I recall correctly, in the literature that if your husband's sexually abusing your children, you should leave to protect them. It was always, always designed to keep women subservient, to keep women in abusive situations if necessary, to do whatever was needed to like preserve this image that really benefited the man as how the head of house he could do anything. He had really huge free reign. And then of course that that played out into horrible abuse for children and um you know and, and bad outcomes did you then so your your mother as, as you say sort of got into this to save the family unit or to save the family save the marriage did you then start to notice these big changes did she become then more submissive did your father become a little bit abusive and domineering yeah you'd you'd asked well let me um, so you, like you asked how much I took this and internalized it. I took it hook, line, and sinker, and my mom did as well. And um, the reason I think is because right, I thought she did anyway. I think she does. Did um, the reason is because you know we 
we wanted to save the family and this seemed like something that would save the family. But the, um, did my mom become, I feel like she lost her voice in some significant ways because in, um, you know, if in a normal mainstream world, um, I think that if she had wanted a divorce, it wouldn't have been quite so awful, right? If she wanted, you know, um, more freedom or whatever, like it would have been kind of more normalized. And it, I think that she made herself even more submissive because she thought that that would save the family. Um, I think that I'm not sure that my dad necessarily wanted a huge, huge, huge submission situation. Um, I think that he kind of took bits and pieces of the, the IBLP and it was okay, but he was kind of doing his own thing anyway. Okay. Um, but, but I think that this dynamic also made it really, really, really incredibly hard for us because the more that my dad like promised that he would follow these rules and then he disregarded them, you know, our trust in him kind of shriveled. And then, um, and then I think that we developed, or at least I developed some scrupulosity around trying to save the family and trying to, you know, be the best Christian. So you see that IBLP families, that these Christians are like shining eyes and they're so happy and they're so perfect and their families look amazing. And, um, and so what I thought was that if you do what they say and you know, this would become your life too, right? And you'll do anything to be like that when you're really broken and you're hurting so much. And I think my mom thought the same, that she was kind of like, I would, you know, like, I just need to submit more and, um, you know, and do these things. And then God's great blessings will come to us as well. And of course, they never did. It only just got worse and worse and worse. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? the internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Scrupulosity is 
quite an outstanding word that I didn't know. And I've just looked up while talking to you. Scrupulosity is a subtype of obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD, involving religious or moral obsessions. Scrupulous individuals are overly concerned that something they thought or did might be a sin or other violation of or religious or moral doctrine. I, I, I think that's just what an amazing word. So thank you for teaching me that. And it's one as somebody who's supposed to be doing cults as my, you know, my theme uh, as a word. I, everyone's probably listening. Going, How do you not know that already? Well, I just didn't, you know, but but that's that's fascinating. And it's something I've interviewed a lot of um, Hasidic or formerly well, some, sometimes still Hasidic Jewish people. And I've always thought that that is one of the uh, communities in particular where you get scrupulosity and it's just like so many rules. And I suppose everybody has a little bit of that inside of us, that that urge of like, if I just do this thing and that thing, everything's going to be okay. So I think that is something we can all relate to a little bit uh, and see how yeah. you guys fell further and further into that. Um, what was... Was there then also a competitive modesty uh, showing who could be the most modest between like friends of yours? In, in, did you have friends in the in the community as well? Yeah. So, um, so um, my best friend, of course, was um, also in this organization. And then um, when I was 15, 16, where I was 16. So we joined IDLP when I was 14, 14 or 15, I think. Um, I had been in public school. And my family, um, you know, they had been to IBLP seminars and stuff, and we're still just basically garden variety Christian, maybe a little bit more strict now, but um, kind of just still fairly normal. Um, and because of the social dynamics of my family and some difficulties, I ended up, you know, doing pretty poorly. Um, I got a D in a class in ninth grade in the IB program, and my parents were like, this isn't really working for you in public school. Can we, you know, do you want to homeschool and um, and maybe join IBLP, um, ATI program. And I remember I was driving home with my mom and we were in the van, my brothers were in the back and she, she was going through kind of like the list of things that would be the rules if we joined this elite group. And of course with the elite group would come lots of community as well. But, um, it was, um, I would, you know, have to wear skirts and couldn't date and, you know, all these things that, um, all of a sudden, you know, we would be subjected to you. And I was like, can I still shave my legs? And she said, yes, you will. Be, they will want you to shave your legs and wear makeup. But when we joined IBLP, um, the ATI program, it did come with a big community and a lot of friends. And um, I'm not sure. Well, I guess competitive modesty. Yes, in the sense that um, we were always like needing to be ex- exceptionally, exceptionally modest. Um, and you really almost loathed people, Christians who were not. So, um, so where, you know, now we had to wear long skirts, especially at the training centers, long skirts and, you know, very, very, very modest clothing. If you met Christians who weren't like this, we were told that this is the way that we stand out for God, that this is really what God wants for, um, you know, for Christians is to be separate from the world and very different from the world. And then if you saw Christians who were um, not modest and not, uh, you know, subscribing to the same things, you really actually, um, based on some verses in, in Revelations, like you thought God would hate them and that they were lukewarm Christians, that God would spew them out of his mouth or, or things like that. Like they were the worst of the most vile people on earth because they were leading non-believers astray by wearing immodest shirts or by, you know, like being a Christian, but still um, causing men to lust after them. So, so in my friend group, you know, we were all pretty modest and I don't think that there was a lot of like competitive, I'm more modest than you are, but there was definitely a really big part of me and something that I had to forgive myself around quite a lot um, as an adult was thinking that like, Christians who wore shorts or Christians who wore shirts where you could actually see that they have a test, um, you know, were the worst of the worst Christians, like God hated them. So yeah, it was very toxic modesty. And then the other part of it is though, um, you're a child, right? So as soon as 11, 12 years old, you're told, oh, you have to cover up. You have to wear high, high neck shirts. You can't, you know, you have to be so aware of what you're wearing 
And it's because like you're taught that you're a lust trap to men, that you're like you're responsible if, if something happens to you. And this is actually in their curriculum. Um, like, what were you wearing? If you're raped, what were you wearing? Who were you with? What time of the day was it? Where were you? Like, like, and you're a child, you're 11, 12, 13, 14 years old. A child reading this, that some if something happens to you, it's Essentially, you have to ask yourself, like, what did you do to cause it? And the worst thing that you could possibly do as a girl is not be a virgin when you get married. Like, it is the utmost crime that, you know, that you, if you were not a virgin, which is, you know, like, I think it's had horrible impacts on so many women who are girls who, who were, who were raped, who were sexually assaulted in some form, that they think that they are gross and, and less than perfect for God outside of the control and also what did you do to make it happen right how did you sin that your your you know assault was your fault so you learn this as a child so 11 12 13 year old and um you know so there's just like so many toxic elements in modesty culture i hate modesty culture i think this purity culture is so hurtful because of its impact on women's self-worth on, on women's fear of reporting if you're the one who caused a man a grown man to rape you and you're 14 and it's your fault are you going to report that do you have the like the wherewithal inside to report that you caused a man to do this to you like these are the kinds of things that exist and play out in the world because of purity culture so um so yeah modesty had so many components to it and played into your life so much i remember i was um, we were like playing some game at the call where we were supposed to lock arms behind us and um, with somebody else. Maybe it was kind of like a team building thing. But the shirt I was wearing, which had a high, a high collar to here, was a cotton shirt. And when my arms were locked behind me, I guess you could see the outline of my chest that it existed. And I was pulled aside later by one of the men in the cult and told that I should not wear this kind of shirt anymore, that it was immodest and that, and I had so much horrific guilt. That I was 16 years old. I had so much guilt that I might've caused any male to stumble, right? Because I wore a shirt that had a high collar, but with my arms locked behind me, you could tell I had a chest. And after that, scrupulosity played into it that I always wore cotton shirts that were buttoned down, that were ironed, that were sometimes several sizes larger than I was, so that I could potentially, hopefully not cause men to stumble as a child. And, um, you know, and, and that stayed with me. And it was a guilt that was pervasive and shaming. And I remembered it every single day with shame for years. And so, you know, and, and so scrupulosity comes into like what you wear in modesty culture, right? Or um, it also comes into play with some of the things that you, you know, you think about, you talk about the, um, with how you speak, what you said, whether what you said was honoring to God, whether you told people God bless you at the end of a conversation, you know, all these kinds of weird OCD things that come out of scrupulosity. It's so crazy. I find, um, competitive modesty one of the one of just the most fascinating aspects of humanity i do think that cults and communities are, are what happen when you take some human urges and you take them right to the extreme and make everybody else comply exactly with yours so we definitely have some of that competitive modesty in society we're very quick to, even outside of religions and cults and things we're very quick to bring one another down for getting too big for their boots we're very quick to and then we're all trying to find ways to brag about things in a way that others don't realize is bragging and trying to show this these acts of humility um, and then also what you talk about with regards to being blamed for things that happen to you we see that happen in all sorts of cults and communities as well like Scientology they say you pulled it in it means it was your fault we had that with the actor Danny Masterson who's now gone to prison for probably the rest of his life but the reason that it took 20 years for his crimes against women to be brought to light is because the women in Scientology were, were told they pulled it in or that it was their fault somehow and again, I think that's an extreme of what happens in society in general. We often get blamed for things that uh, we had no impact on. And, and, and these things have a, a big impact on us um, in the future as well, the rest of our lives. Do you find yourself, has that affected you as an adult now, uh, tr 
that kind of modesty culture and the blame stuff, is that affecting how you are now today? Um, modesty culture, I think, ended up being a reason that I had really, really severe um, seasonal affective disorder. And it was so severe that pretty much every single winter, you know, by March, I didn't, I mean, I wasn't actively suicidal, but I didn't want to be here anymore. And and every single day of the summer, I would remember that winter is coming every single day. It was all the time. And, um, and I didn't know why I had this severe depression that came every winter, every winter. And, and it was, it was like this coldness in October and November would settle into my chest and it would be there the entire time until May, I would start to thaw and the summer would be okay again. And then, and then the cycle would go on and on. And, um, and when I was in my mid thirties, so my, I have a my partner, I, I got a divorce, um, thankfully. And, um, my partner, um, is just the most amazing, healing, brilliant, kind soul in the whole world. And he, um, I think I was maybe in my mid thirties and, and I still had these difficult winters, such difficult winters. And, um, and finally he said, okay, I think I found someone who might be able to help you. She's a hypnotist and she's board certified. She's been doing, you know, this kind of work for ages. Um, maybe I think with trauma and veterans and, um, and he said like, let's go talk to her. So I went to talk to her and I always just thought, you know, like I got a divorce in winter, you know, like some sad stuff that happened in winter, maybe all these memories come back in winter just because of these things that had happened in winter. And it turned out that modesty culture was so pervasively in my cells and in my bones that every time I started having to cover up more for winter, because what do you have to do in winter? You have to wear sweaters and you have to put on more clothing and, and, and I would feel the fabric on my skin the memories of the cult and purity and all of this stuff would just come back into my body. And I didn't know that that was what it was, but his, um, you know, hypnotist, her name is Elizabeth. She put me under and then she was like, okay, let's go back. Where did this start? And I was at the cult and I was having to wear all of this clothing. And she was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. So we started working really hard around, you know, um, deprogramming me from the cult through hypnosis and like trauma work. And now, you know, every day it's like no big deal. I, I like winter, I like summer, but that purity culture of modesty of having to cover up and all of these horrible things that happened, you know, um, lived in my body and it lived in, it was as deep as my bones, literally. And every time I had to cover up, it brought such darkness back into my life that I didn't even really want to be here anymore. And now it's better and I'm fine. But yeah, it sticks with you. The things that hurt you and trauma can stick with you in, in your body for decades. Man, I can I totally imagine that. I'm so sorry you went through that as well, Jennifer. It's just, just the worst way to grow up. And I'm so happy. It seems like you're quite happy now and you've got a great partner. Yeah. So that's a lovely ending to that to have. Uh, or not ending, of course, near the beginning of your life still, yeah. you know, but lovely <laughs> ending of the first part um, just after such a difficult part. So uh, what then happened in, as you progressed into your teens? What led to you getting out of there? So, um, so we were at IBLP. I went when I was 16, I went to the training centers. Um, I actually graduated from high school um, when I was 15. My parents had pulled me out, but then I like took the entrance exams to college. So I started college when I was 15 um, full time. And then, um, and then they felt like it was a little bit young to be full time in college. And, um, and I wanted to volunteer to work in the inner city. So IBLT had these really amazing programs. You know, first of all, of course, it's shiny, happy people, absolutely shiny, happy people everywhere. We're coached to be shiny and happy. You're told if you're not, if your eyes are not shining, you know, then it's a reflection on God. It's a reflection on your authorities. And I meet people who have shiny eyes. I also think, oh, you might be really having a hard time, right? So, but you don't know that until you've experienced it. So, so the cult centers were full of shiny, happy people. And I was so broken and it was so hurting. And I thought I would do anything to be happy like them, right? So I volunteered to work in the inner city and teach children, um, you know, who were delinquent or really behind in school. Um, I was 16, so I went to Indianapolis. And um, ironically, so a lot of what I do now, I'm a, um, I'm a 
lawyer, but I'm also an affiliate researcher with Northeastern University. Uh, We have a parent kindergarten program online for teaching symbol-based communication with animals, but um, I learned how to teach phonics. And then that's a lot of what we do now is like symbol-based and reading-based work with animals. Um, And this is where I learned it. So at the Cult Center, you know, I kind of homeschooled the kids who are really struggling. And at the same time, um, it brought a lot more, um, I think, emotional damage and trauma into my life. So um, they have at the at the cult center in Indianapolis, right? Um, they have what's called prayer rooms. We arrive, you know, and, and and we're all volunteering to be there. We are really like very devout Christians. I loved God with my whole heart. I loved Jesus. I prayed every day. I was a bit, you know, I, I, I was very, very, very close, you know, in a relationship with God and Jesus. And pretty much everybody who's volunteering there is. It's not like we're, you know, kids who are breaking all the rules. We're really good kids. We show up and we're told the walls have eyes and everything you do, we'll all know about. And we actually thought there might be cameras in our rooms. So, you know, we're 16 years old, 18, there's fear that they're watching everything you do. And then the flip side of it is that if you screw up, you know, maybe you'll be sent home and shame your family, but you also might be put in a prayer room. And a prayer room is a room that has a bed and a Bible, and you're fed two meals a day, and you could be there for days, you could be in there for weeks. It's solitary confinement for children. (sighs) And I think that the youngest child they had in there in solitary confinement with a Bible was 12 years old. Oh, my God. So... Yeah, so you're showing up and you're like ready to do God's good work in the city with children and homeschool them and teach them and help them. But you arrive and you're told that we're watching everything you do. And you know, if you screw up, you know, you could end up in solitary confinement for days or weeks or months. I don't know if it was months, but days or weeks. You could be in solitary confinement, two meals a day in the Bible, and you couldn't talk to anybody. So this is kind of like, this kind of like fear settled in my you know, inside of me. And and on the one hand, I'm trying to save my family and I'm trying to be, you know, whatever God wants me to be and as close to him as possible. And I'm afraid of screwing up because if I screw up, like I'm going to lose all of God's blessings, but it could hurt my family. You know, I'll disappoint God. Um, You know, I I have these kind of like these compulsions that are playing out that were taught in the curriculum. The the curriculum they give us is like, there's sins of commission if you lie, but there's sins of omission. So you're committing a sin if you forget to thank God for the green light. You're committing a sin if you didn't like bless somebody when you were talking to them, right? So you, sins of commission are very straightforward, like don't murder people. But sins of omission are all the things that you didn't incorporate God into your day. So now you're just sinning all the time and sinning all the time. But I know every sin is like disappointing God. And my righteousness is like filthy rags to God, but I love God and I want God to love me and I want to be so good for him. And then my family is having a hard time, but also now you're at a training center where if you screw up, not only are you disappointing God, right? Which you're trying not to do anyway, you could land in solitary confinement for weeks. So it was a lot of additional like stress in a religious sense like that, plus a fear of punishment. Plus, you know, now, you know, you're having talks because your shirt, when your arms are behind you or stuff, it was tight enough so that they could see your tusks. So you're afraid of like all the ways that you may be causing men to lust after you whatever and, and so so where my family might have been a little bit like more mainstream christian as a child and then they became a little bit like more strict when they you know reached iblp or whatever not necessarily them but like the community was at the training centers you were seeped in it and um and so you, you know rumor had it if you rode the elevators with the same boy they thought that you're riding the elevators with the same boy quite a lot like you could end up in, a, in, in an prayer room. If you sat at the table and they thought that you were sitting next to a guy you liked quite a lot, you could end up in a prayer room, right? So um, so now you're having to do like mental calculation a lot to figure out, are you sitting next to the same person? Oh could God. somebody read into it? Like, is the elevator okay? Like you're always having to 
be on the defensive about your behavior because if you're not, then you could end up in like a really horrible punishment. So, so there was that. There was also like at the training centers, um, you know, one of my friends was in a car accident and I think she had a concussion and they, they didn't take her to the hospital and there was a huge distress for hospitals and doctors generally. So she, she was basically like left for dead in a room. Um, and I think that some friends got her on a plane and flew her out to help her escape. Um, so, so she was essentially left for dead. Um, and then, you know, her family was very difficult. She, she moved far away from them. Um, I have, you know, like, like I, they talked about chaining children to trees that were bad, like bad children to trees and leaving them outside. I was told from my friend and, um, this, I think these were orphan children. And, um, and they said they decided against it because they thought that they might get in trouble for this. So, yeah. So it wasn't even like, oh, it's a bad idea to chain children to a tree. There was just such deep punishment. They had conversations about how rebellious children should still be stoned and that they were disappointed that, you know, like we couldn't stone bad children. So, you know, they're, they're, they're the whole life IDLP, which is its own kind of like, however, the families have that in their dynamic, but the training centers were, you know, a totally different seeped experience of, of the fear stuff. And then there's all this demonology there too. Like, you know, um, you, you become repetitive in your prayers. Like you pray a hedge of protection around your room or around the place so demons can't get in, you know, and there's like language around like with the blood of Jesus, I do this and that. Like, so there's these ritual, you know, basically um, phrases that you say to enchants to try to like keep the demons away from you. Um, so, so it was quite a lot at the the training centers. Um, my dad, uh, well, my dad wanted me to go to, back to college. My dad was very interested um, and advocated a lot for me to get an education. And he got a lot of flack around that. Um, because people didn't think women should go to college, but he wanted me to go to college. And then Mr. Gothard found out and Mr. Gothard um, invited me to come to headquarters to like work with him personally. So, you know, that ended up being the next thing worth going from Indianapolis to headquarters to work for Mr. Gothard. And he's like, is he like the big cheese Gothard? Yes. Yeah. So he even looks in your direction. You think you're like, oh my God like the most important man since jesus actually noticed that i exist you know um so so he he founded iblp um and then you know he's a very charismatic person um also has the shiny eyes but who wouldn't at that point when you're the leader of a huge international organization with millions and millions of followers are people giving him in some way a lot of money um so he himself was pretty humble uh, he lived, I think he, his, his mom had, uh, and I cared for her. I lived in his house caring for his mom. Um, he lived maybe in like a little suite in the training centers. Hmm. He had an older car, you know, um, he didn't have a big fancy house that was his or, or anything like that, but money would go into the training centers. Um, and then, you know, and the training centers are very posh and very beautiful. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Because usually these guys are like uh, just like super million billionaires getting loads and loads of money, and I, I can, yeah, yeah, it seems like he's sort of a, a, a quiet version. Was was he a, a bad guy or was he like a true believer? He he was a true believer in what he thought, right? So he it's mixy, right? It's hard to know what, what when you're a child and you think that somebody's like amazing and the epitome of godly you have these these ideas and delusions and then when you're an adult you look back and you're like oh this is a broken person with broken beliefs spewing out broken things in a very charismatic way that plays out in a way that hurts people deeply and profoundly the rest of their lives um but at the time you know you're a child and you're like oh my god like this person is so holy so some of the things that I think, um, I think he genuinely believed what he taught. I think he genuinely wanted to help people. Um, I think that his belief system um, was full of 
power and control for men. Um, he believed that if people just followed exactly what the Bible said, that um, you know God's great blessings would come. I think he believed that. But also, when you're in a position of incredible power, you have incredible responsibility, and that didn't bear out, right? So when um, when you have you know a speaker phone and you're able to tell people that if your husband is abusing you, you have to stay and make an appeal and submit more and pray more, right? Even though he believed the things he said, the things he said, he didn't have feedback from others. He was open to feedback from others, professionals or others saying, you're keeping women in abusive situations. You're creating harmful, toxic situations at people's homes. You're exposing children to abuse. You're encouraging families that have a predator as a father to stay because you're telling women to stay no matter what. So so I think he believed that if you, and, and this is very common in Christianity, like even now with the new Roe v. Wade like, idea that attains that, you know, oh, like let's outlaw abortion and God's great blessings will happen. But 50% more women have died this year than prior years and, and, and mothers, right? So like, like you just believe and he believed that you follow these principles and God's great blessings will happen. And the reality is that's not true. Like women are dying and in Gothard's belief system um, and women are injured in Gothard's belief system, families were damaged. People had enduring religious trauma. And so, so he was very humble. He lived on site. He wore the same outfit all the time. He didn't have a flashy car that was new. He had like his old 1970s car that he kept up. He was very modest in spending and frugal. I think the training centers were beautiful. Um, and this played into him being a really good leader and, and a kind person and somebody who really believed what he said. And also he didn't have accountability to people from outside who would say the things you're teaching hurt people and the things that you say you know, harm children. So, so that was the hard part. And he did. I think. I think he used his power also, um, in ways that were predatory towards the girl, the Gothard girls. So it was inappropriate. For example, like he, he the things he did were inappropriate, and um, and he used that power and the power dynamic in ways that were not okay and were wrong. Did, did that ever happen to you, either through Gothard or other elders at the church? So with um, with Gothard, I went to headquarters and he, um, you know, he was saving me from college, right? Because he didn't want me to go to college. And my dad, my dad didn't like believe most of the stuff. I think anyway, he was kind of like checked out of it. He would follow along for the sake of my mom wanted us to do this. And my mom was desperately trying to save a hard situation and me too. Um, but my dad, you know, my dad was there for some appearances, but also not completely tucked in. Um, so my dad wanted me to go back to college and then Gothard saved me from college and I went to headquarters and I lived there and he was supposed to like, he wanted me to help write college curriculum for women or, or something like where basically I would create college courses instead of having to go to college. I would create a college with an IVLP so women could maybe go to college, but not actually have to go to those horrible secular institutions. So so I lived there, but he would want me to get up at 4.30 in the morning and meet him for devotions. And, you know, when you're when I was there, I was like, oh, it's Mr. Gothard. Like, nothing could happen. And, you know, it's it's Mr. Gothard. Like, did you know he's never been married? Um, but as an adult now, I know that if you're telling me, a 17-year-old to meet you at 4.30 in the morning when there is nobody else there, you know, that's that's inappropriate. It's grooming. It, it's not okay for a 17-year-old generally to be around someone at 4.30 in the morning in this kind of setting, um, you know. And so, so you, it, it felt super awkward. Um, he played footsie quite a lot. So I would be in his office all day long and he would like touch my feet with his feet. Um, my parents are really involved. My dad was obviously like really very much basically wanting me to, he, he was trying this out, but he wanted me to go back to college. And I only was at headquarters with Mr. Gothard for like four months. But during that time, yeah, like like it would be footsie under the desk. It would be immediate at 4.30 in the morning, which is inappropriate. 
Um, and then it kind of makes you override your senses. Like as a, you know, as a 17 year old, you should probably think, oh, I probably shouldn't meet with somebody at 4.30 in the morning, like under these circumstances. Um, but you're also like, oh, well, no, it's okay because this is an exception. So, so it kind of makes you override your instincts in ways that could make you unsafe in the future yeah. as well. He hid beneath his power and his cloak of righteousness. So uh, one thing we've not talked too, too much about, apart from saying the words shiny, happy people, is there was a documentary. Uh, it mentions these people called the Duggars, for people who haven't seen it in, in particular, I believe, and the IBLP and all of this stuff. What, what were your thoughts on the documentary? And I, I've heard you say that it glossed over some of the aspects of abuse. Yeah, so... Um, I think that for me, in a lot of ways, although I've, I've had to do a lot of deprogramming, like religious trauma deprogramming and IBLP deprogramming, um, one of my life has been really compartmentalized. And I hated the fact that I was a part of this. I hated who I was. Like now, I, I, I had looked back and I hated who I was at 18. You think that maybe, maybe you were extra sensitive, you know? So, so I had a lot of mental health challenges anxiety, depression, you know, when I was 21, I was suicidal, um, really stemming from, from this stuff. Um, even after I became an atheist when I was 20 and I'm more spiritual now, but, but, um, you think maybe it was just you, you think maybe you're too sensitive. Maybe like, maybe I screwed up, maybe other people were okay, but you know, whatever. And so, so I didn't realize that I really disliked, had a wall around, separated who I am now from from this person who experienced, you know, all of these hard things, um, I, and the person who judged people pretty hard, you know, um, and so so I've always had this thick wall up, and and kind of hated that person, and when I watch shiny happy people, um, not only is it accurate, like I said, I feel like. Some of the harder things I didn't even mention, like I have a friend who was basically left for dead and was flown out by airplane, stuck out and flown out, right? Like this is this is not stuff that's in the documentary. They don't talk about, you know, this is secondhand, right? But my friend who heard about children getting like they wanted to tie them up to a tree and leave overnight. Like, like that's not that's not the kind of stuff that's in the documentary. Um, but hearing the documentary exposed and you also i also thought well maybe idlp is like you know they just like kind of cons extra conservative christians and maybe it was me maybe i had a bad experience but i've had a lot of i still have nightmares every three weeks every three weeks i wake up screaming from a nightmare then i'm over 40 from the things that happened when i was in idlp and so but you think like, oh, maybe it was me. Maybe I was extra sensitive. Maybe I screwed up. And then when the when the documentary came out and I heard that so many others had experienced these hard things and that they had trauma from it and they experienced the same things I had, that they, you know, the Gothard girls had experienced the same kind of weirdness and in some cases so much worse than I did, that you know, the training centers and the prayer rooms scared so many and that it's not okay to put children in solitary confinement just because maybe they're in an elevator too often with a boy or even having a crush on a boy, right? Like these types of things, the stuff that it was a pervasive theme for so many really was incredibly healing to me because for the first time, I knew that I wasn't alone and that um, others you know, had fought and struggled to heal and um, had to, you know, overcome so much. So often these girls go into abusive marriages because you're taught to, right? Like, even though I was an agenda atheist by the time I was 20, um, I walked right into a marriage that was really hard and, and at the end also very violent. And so, um, and, and that happened to so many. And so when you when you learn that you're not by yourself um, in these struggles and in this journey of healing, um, it made me almost feel like for the first time, I had this like visual image that I was sitting in an armchair 
and this 18-year-old girl who had been me was sitting there too. And we could talk. And I could tell her, I'm so sorry. I'm, I love you. And I love who you are. And these are not you. It's not you who did this. It was this whole cult that did this to you. And I felt so much forgiveness. For the first time, I could forgive her. And I knew that it wasn't me. That it was them. So um, the documentary was purely healing. No, it's it's okay. Thank you so much for being brave enough to come on here and share this because exactly what you're saying, this will help so many other people who are going through different things. And it's not just people who are in religious, uh, you know, cults and things like that. It's people who are in violent relationships, uh, violent friendship groups, like anything with those kinds of cult dynamics which appear in humanity over and over again. And just listening to you talk this way, because... It's, it's almost like to use an overly fashionable word you were being gaslit for so many years you're being made to think you're crazy despite you, you, you know and you're the only one because nobody else can speak out then you watch this great thing it's what art can do documentaries and movies and things where you realize then wow everyone was thinking the same thing as me well most of us most people were how how what a at once it's tragic to see that so many other people were going through such horrible things but also how wonderful to know that you weren't alone in it and you weren't wrong and you weren't crazy did those abuses that were maybe skimmed over a bit in the documentary do they go as far as are we talking about sexual i have to be a bit careful how i say it on youtube because you get you get kicked off if you say this too explicitly but towards people who are underage i don't think that the belief system or cult had like sex abuse rituals or anything like that they didn't um quite the opposite like girls were supposed to be totally totally pure um did sex abuse happen yes from the elders to to children well i think it was it was mr gothard was accused by 40 you know i think about 40 women 40. who yeah who said that he you know did inappropriate things to them. Um, I'm not sure that there was um, rape, which is a high like like this is this is not making it okay, right? Like right, right. It, it doesn't make the bar lower. Um, I think that he did um, what's reporting is like very inappropriate touching of chests um, and and other kind of like um, sexual harassment, sexual abuse that way. Um, and for me, again, like my parents were already, my dad was already like halfway shuffling me back to college and thank God, like he wanted me to get a doctorate and I got a doctorate. Um, you know, so, so, and that helped me get out of, you know, an abusive marriage. But as far as like the women who were there, I think some of them didn't have families who were as involved or some had fathers who were absent and Mr. Gothard said that he would be like, you know, their father or take their place. So, um, so he had, he had this dynamic of power, right? Like he had a lot of power. And when you don't have a lot of power, not only because, you know, you aren't Mr. Gothard, but you're also a child, you're underage, you're so young and you're a woman, like, like this power dynamic makes everything that he does so much potentially more harmful, right? Like, like, like touching these girls, you know, is traumatic. And then who are they going to tell? He's the leader, right? Like, you're supposed to trust him. I had this idea, like, he's Mr. God. He's like second to Jesus. You know, if you're, and, and while he didn't touch me that way, um, you always think like, if he's second to Jesus and he's doing these things and it's wrong, like, it's you. Maybe it's you who's wrong. Like, maybe you're the one who has a problem with millions of people around the world basically worship him you know like the, the, that he did such trauma for so many women and and it was not okay what he did it was wrong it was traumatic how did you eventually leave did that cause a rift with your family and, and how is the relationship now with your parents um so when i was 18 i came back from iblp and it's really 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 broken um i had super deep depression um, my family dynamics were worse. Um, my dad, you know, was frequently, even more frequently upset. Um, my mom still thought he was cheating. I, as a Christian, um, I pray, I, I wake up at 4.30 in the morning every single day, you know, um, praying for my family for at least an hour, hour and a half. I fasted every Sunday. 
who's the poster child of, you know, and I, I did. I had a relationship with God. I had a relationship with Jesus. I felt very close to them. And then I got back and, and I was pretty broken from that experience, but also my family was worse. And I just started thinking. It made me think a lot. Like, I didn't think God was singling me out to ignore me. You're told all the time that, like, if you pray, if you fast, God will bless you. God God will create miracles. All those miracles happen to other people. They never happen to me. And, um, and things only got worse and worse and worse. So I got back. I was broken. My family was, um, you know, in a pretty bad spot. Outwardly, they looked amazing. You know, we went to church every, every week. We looked perfect. But inwardly, we were really crumbling. And I had to think, like, maybe God doesn't have power. Maybe, maybe God just doesn't have the power to fix my family. Maybe, maybe he has more limited power than they think, right? So I was starting to wonder whether God really was all-powerful. Um, I also had this problem with the idea of hell that was developing. And so I would think about, you know, how, how many people were going to go to hell. And the fact that God knew from before he created us that, you know, he would have to create a hell. I always thought of puppies in a room that were naughty, right? Like maybe they wet the floor, maybe they chewed the sofa, you know, maybe they were naughty in whatever way, but could I put them in a fireplace and burn them alive forever, right? Like, can you burn a puppy that is misbehaving? And when I would think of hell, I think of God, who's supposedly all loving, is I knew that I was going to create a world where almost all of the inhabitants were going to burn eternally in hell. How could anybody who loves anything create that world? I would choose not to. If I knew that I was going to have a child who would experience horrific pain their entire lives, and I knew this before getting pregnant, I would choose to not get pregnant. I would not subject horrific pain to anything. I, and, and I could not imagine putting puppies in a fire alive forever. And I thought that about God and about people that I could not imagine a loving God putting people, people into hell forever. Like who could do that? Like how could you be a loving person and put the Dalai Lama in hell, right? So or anyone. So I started having like these thoughts around around the logistics of it. That didn't work. My scrupulosity was off the charts. I was still like thinking that I was a horrible person. God must be disappointed in me all day long because I, you know, forgot to thank him for the green light. I forgot to say, God bless you to this person who just like talked to me. And if I didn't say, God bless you, maybe they'll go to hell because that I should have said that to save them and like bring God to their mind, right? So I had all the scrupulosity all these challenges at home, it was all kind of like twirling around. I started learning about like evolution and and and, and trying to understand really the, the, the logic and the facts of everything. And at one point, I just, I remember where I was, I'll always remember, like all these thoughts swirling and I thought, and I've been years of thinking this, right? Like two years at this point, trying to figure it out. And I thought, if there is a God, he can come find me. But I'm going to choose my life and I'm going to live life on my own terms. And I'm going to create the goodness in my life. I'm going to forge my own path. And um, and I became an atheist that moment. And, and I felt such incredible, immense relief because now I wasn't offending a deity anymore. I wasn't like, you know, going to curse someone to hell by accident by forgetting to tell him, God bless you. I, you know, really wasn't responsible for my family anymore. Like it wasn't my job to pray and fast for them because I needed to save them. Like I could just live and forge my own path. And it didn't completely work out. I ended up in that, like meeting someone and then getting married. And this person, you know, was also fairly broken and um, and hurtful. But, but I ended up too with the same reason that I was going to forge my own life and find goodness and happiness. And and fought for it. Um, and I'm so glad. Yeah. No, I'm glad you did as well. I'm also an atheist. I know a lot of uh, viewers of this channel are not. They are believers of various different things. And, you know, I guess I don't want them to feel sort of perturbed or put out by this because by, by what you're saying, because I think it's up to them really to call out the abuses of 
of cults like the IBLP uh, as much as the rest of us, you know, and and I'm so pleased to see that so many viewers in this channel who are believers, who are Christians or Jews or whatever it might be, uh, that they do and they do see the horrors in what yes. you went through and they do relate to you and they don't have to make you have the same beliefs that they do. You can all have different beliefs, which uh, which is key, I think, to uh, to this channel, I think. Um, Jennifer, is there somewhere you'd like to send people to your Instagram, socials, anything like that? Sure. Um, so uh, part of my path is that um, I ended up becoming um, a researcher and trainer for for parrots and animals and teaching symbol-based communication through science. So um, I'm on Parrot Kindergarten on Instagram and TikTok, and we have lots of cute videos of animals learning to communicate. I think that because of how um, little voice I had as a teenager, um, it's really made me passionate about giving voice to those who are vulnerable and those who don't have a voice the way we do. So um, the work I do is really empowering animals with voice and studying that and trying to understand how to um, give animals as much agency and happiness in our families as possible as well. Well, if you if you type, is it your Instagram you'd want people to see? Jen Cunha. Sure, yeah, Jen, uh, it's uh, parrot kind at Parrot Kindergarten. Thank you, Jennifer Cunha, for coming on the show. Thank you all for listening to On the Edge with Andrew Gold. You can get the Saturday episodes. There was one, for example, yesterday, well, a couple of days ago by the time this comes out, uh, on patreon.com slash Gold. Those are every Saturday, often about Scientology and different kinds of culty weird things. But as I say, things are going to start mixing up a little bit in the coming months as I've got a guest booker working for the show. So thank you all for your support and all the love and everything. Do go check out the brilliant uh, Instagram and TikTok of Jennifer Cunha that's Parrot Kindergarten find out about her birds and cockatoos and things like that and I'll see you next time Hey guys it is Ryan I'm not sure if you know this about me but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can I like to work but I like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino they have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week you can play for free anytime anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.